Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Durham. Well, welcome to another episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I have a confession to make today. My inner child still loves a good game of scavenger hunting. Somewhere in my early teens, I was introduced to the game of scavenger hunting. Since my scavenger hunting days, when I heard sermons or read books about knowing God's will, I've noticed a similarity between knowing God's will and a good scavenger hunt. Basically, it works this way. God has hid his will from us. He's given us some cryptic clues and lets us go for it. Hunt, hunt, and then hunt some more until we find the elusive prize. The victors, of course, are the super spiritual. Only they understand the clues and have learned God's method of hiding his will. And I have to be absolutely candid with you. I hear some explain the process of finding God's will, and it surely seems to me that God has lost his will and needs us to help him recover it. So far from being the truth, it almost doesn't deserve any kind of response, but I can't help myself. And thus, I'd like to offer some reality from the Bible. I'd like to take you back to the text we discussed in our last episode. It's Psalm 32, verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. We said in our last show that God wants you to know His will. In fact, He knows you need it. He knows that without His leadership, you'd never make it to the celestial shore. Why would He then make it difficult to discern? Well, that's my whole premise. He doesn't make it difficult, just the opposite. I'm not saying there are sometimes some complexities, of course. But it isn't a scavenger hunt or a game of hide-and-seek, no. Nor am I saying that it's always easy to do God's will, no. That's not true either. I'm saying that God knows your frame, it is but dust, and that without Him you would never be able to discern His will. Therefore, the text says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. As we said last week, these two clauses are not redundant. They're not saying the same thing. I will instruct you means that God will cause you to understand what he teaches. God's made a covenant with you. And that covenant is all that you need to walk, live, and move will not only be taught to you by God himself, but the same God will also make you to get it, to fathom it, to comprehend his blessed will for your life. Of course, you'd like me to answer the question, how does he do that? And I'm going to share some principles or patterns by which our Heavenly Father makes us to know his will, but not today. Today's object is for all of us to see a very important fact, that to know God's will is neither to be focused on his will, nor is it as mysterious as first thought. Now, I know that sounds confusing. Just stay with me. First, knowing God's will is only one aspect of relationship with Him. 
It's not separate from living and relating with the Almighty. It's no different than two people, man and wife, who've pledged themselves to each other. They, by living together, learn what each other prefers. Do you know God well enough that you know what He prefers? Now, this is as much a part of learning what God's will is as anything else. You must learn the person you're trying to please. Perhaps another analogy will help, the analogy of parenting a child. I want you to listen to the last phrase of Psalm 32.8, I will guide you with my eye. Now, this makes much sense when you see it through the context of a father and child relationship. There's a parallel to our rearing our children and the Lord rearing us. For a child to understand the eye of his or her parent, in other words, the occasional glances they receive from dad or mom, they need to know their parents well. Reading the eye of dad or mom always has a history. Years go into learning the skill. First, when a child is small, the emphasis of our training is, of course, instructional and and correctional. At this stage of learning, you don't expect the child to know very much. They couldn't recite the alphabet or numbers 1 through 10. They're just trying to learn their world and to understand just who it is that insists that they call them daddy or mommy. So what do we do at this stage of life? What's our training, teaching, instruction like? Well, we teach them our expectations. We try to establish simple guidelines based upon the child's development and those that are necessary for their safety. At this point, you wouldn't teach a toddler to stay out of the street, but you teach them how to walk so that one day you'll have to train them not to walk out into the street into the pathway of an oncoming car. First things come first for a reason. Second stage of Parental instruction is correction. At some point as the child grows, he or she has learned the expectations or boundaries you've placed on them, and they're going to test those boundaries. You can believe that. When they do so, a faithful parent doesn't let it slide or laugh at the cuteness of their defiance. A loving parent corrects the misbehaviors of the child to conform them to the teaching they have taught the child. When a child is pre-adolescent, our training becomes more a reinforcement of the earlier years. With the addition of wisdom teaching, the parent is not just instilling do's and don'ts, but the wisdom behind the do's and don'ts. You don't want to teach a child what they can or cannot do, but also why it is so. We want our children to know what is wise and unwise, and in this way, they learn good decision-making, especially when things are not so black and white. You'll not always be there to tell them what to do, but if they learn wisdom, then they can make wise decisions without you. If instruction is always about rules, then the tendency is to raise legalists, who often do what is right when it's to their advantage. Many throw off all restraint when they're given the freedom from parental oversight. That's not what we want to do. Now, it's during the teenage years we begin to test them and see how well they have learned. We begin to allow them to make decisions, observing and discerning the process. 
We provide more guidance and counsel rather than hands-on instructions. When they were smaller, we told them what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. In the teenage years, we should be able to start instructing less. Then, by the later teen years or early 20s, we hopefully are watching our children practicing good decision-making and following our training. Now, all that is what goes into a parent being able to guide with the eyes. He or she does not need to say a thing. We can merely look a certain way, and our children know what our will is concerning the matter. Therefore, you can extract this principle. A part of learning the will of the parent is to learn the parent. And the same The same is true about learning the will of God. The better you know God, the better you know what He desires. And the better you know the Lord, He can merely then guide you with His eye. The metaphor clearly suggests that we know the Lord well enough that He need not say a word. Just the look of His countenance tells us all we need to know. This should tell us that the subjective guidance that so often people talk about is less about God speaking to us and more about us knowing our God and His wisdom. Certainly the guiding with the eye is a metaphor then. God is spirit and a physical eye is not required of Him. The metaphor is a way to tell us that knowing God in His heart will be sufficient in providing us the direction we will need in life. And, of course, this happens as we experience the God of the Bible in the Bible. You see, God's goal is to teach us His ways, and then let us live accordingly. Listen to Psalm 32, verse 9. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Well, this is the antithesis. Of verse 8, the child knows his father so well that dad need not say a word, but with a glance of his eyes, the son knows what his father wants. But the horse and mule has no such understanding of its master. And that's the key to this principle of knowing God's will. It is the word understanding. The brute animal needs the bit and bridle to come to its owner. It needs the reins to know which way to turn. It cannot look into the eye of the master and know the master's mind. It simply has no understanding. No understanding of the master. The Lord's purpose and work with us is to spiritually grow us to think like he thinks and not to have to tell us each specific thing we are to do. A good father instructs his children on what is wise, not to make the decision for them, but for them to make wise decisions. It's the goal of God's parenting, of us, that we grow up in Him knowing what is truth, what is right and good. His instruction leads us to think as He thinks and to choose as he would choose. This, my friend, is Christian maturity. I don't need an impression or a sign or something extraordinary. No, I know my heavenly Father, and thus I know how he would choose what to do. To have to tell us each thing that we need to do, well, that defeats 
that purpose and suggests stubbornness on our part. We've not learned to think like our Heavenly Father. Let me give you an illustration. Karen and I have three children. Our sons are 35 and 34, and our daughter is 22. Our daughter, Victoria, was born unresponsive and not breathing. Only the goodness of God allowed us to keep her. But she's not like other girls her age. Deprived of oxygen at birth, plus having Down syndrome and autism, she has the mental capacity of a very small child. She has to be dressed, bathed, and fed. She cannot communicate except for a few words. Simply put, she requires 24-7 supervision. Our boys, which are now grown men, are a different story. Both are normal young men. We, we expect to have to pick out Victoria's clothing and to brush her teeth. However, we don't expect our sons to call us and ask what they should wear that day or require us to tell them when to brush their teeth. If so, well, we would have not a normal situation. We'd have serious problems. But with Victoria, that's to be expected because she doesn't have the capacity of mental maturity. But on the other hand, we reared our sons and instructed them. We made them to understand what was proper and tried to the best of our ability to instill wisdom in them. My sons know me. They know what delights me and what displeases me. They know my heart and will, and they're pleased to do whatever I want if I should ask. They live their lives according to the biblical wisdom we taught them. And I'm so very grateful to God for them. Well, the same is true with our Heavenly Father. He delights that we know His heart so well and we live accordingly. You see, He's invested Himself in us, developed us, He's trained us, He's given us a book that reveals His heart and will to us so that we can know Him and His ways. It would be grievous, listen, grievous to him if we did not willingly learn of him, requiring that he now must tell us each specific thing we are to do each and every day. That would indicate a severe problem, a retarded progress in maturity. If the Lord Jesus has to subjectively guide you about everything you are to do, then you only prove yourself to lack understanding as well as being spiritually underdeveloped. Anyone who proposes, we must hear God speak to us and be subjectively led about each and every step, is advocating the very opposite of spiritual maturity. Now, I've not made it a secret that I do believe in subjective guidance by the Holy Spirit, but not the kind most teach. Such teaching cripples and stunts spiritual growth. Now, there's one more thing that needs to be discussed before we end this episode today. A fixation with doing God's will may be an indication of a very spiritually immature person. Yes, that's true. Listen carefully. Some believers become so obsessed with doing what is right that they lose sight of the kind of person they should be. They always want to know how to dot the I and cross the T. This is because they believe Christianity is all about obedience to commandments. They develop a neurosis about knowing and doing the will of God that they don't realize that God is not just about good behavior. His ultimate goal is their hearts. And that 
they by nature become the kind of men who reflect the maturity of Jesus Christ. God is the ultimate parent, and He's rearing sons to be men of God and daughters, women of God. They don't need to be told what to do. They already know because they know their God and Father. But a preoccupation with self and being and doing right is just the opposite of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Listen to the text. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. A sacrifice is consumed, and it's consumed for the glory of God to which it is offered. There's no preoccupation with the sacrifice, no neurotic obsession over it. Absolutely not. The obsession is with God. Are you overly concerned about your rightness, whether or not you're pleasing to God? Or are you more concerned about experiencing the pleasure that is to be found only in Christ? Are you living with this as your pursuit, or are you pursuing a legal and rigid conformity to God so you can be pleased with your performance? I meet a lot of people who are Christians who are in that predicament. Again, listen to the text, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Notice, God does not tell us what his good and acceptable and perfect will is. Rather, we prove or discern what it is. They who have a renewed mind are the only ones who can discern the will of God. This is saying no more, no less than what Psalm 32 verses 8 and 9 are saying. Those with spiritual understanding know God and His will and are able to discern what it is and what isn't His will for them. So how do you get a renewed mind? Well, you're given a new mind when God regenerates you. And the only way for that mind to be renewed is found in Scripture. It's both soaking the mind in biblical truth until illumination comes and faith appropriates it. What the Lord wants us to be is more important to Him than what we do. For if we become what He wants us to be, we will do what pleases Him. What Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is saying is that the Lord wants to remake us to think and act like Him and not in a robotic way. He wants us to naturally live in such a way that godliness is instinctive and our affections that motivate us to please Him. An over-preoccupation with knowing God's will may be an indication that we are really concerned about our own safety and well-being more than anything else. We're not denying self, but protecting self. That doesn't eliminate God speaking directly or personally to us. But as we have already stated, God will never speak something contrary to His written word. And anything perceived to be spoken must be brought under the authority of the word, tested as anything or anyone else should be tested. So much of what today is being taught as God speaking is not. It's not the truth. 
to be told to sit down with a piece of paper and start writing whatever comes into your mind, and that what you write down is God speaking to you is not only unbiblical, my friend, it borders on the demonic. The Bible promises that God will lead, guide, and direct us. And one of the greatest promises it gives is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. No doubt about it. None. He will direct your paths. And it won't be like a scavenger hunt or a game of hide and seek. As you get to know him in his word, you learn what he, God, is like, what he loves, and that becomes his guiding eye. Well, thank you for listening today. I'd like to tell you before we end today about my new book, The Fight of Faith, How a Christian Can Experience Assurance of Salvation. This is a helpful book, not just for those who struggle in this area, but for those who are trying to help others who do struggle with assurance. You can order the book through our website, realtruthmatters.com, realtruthmatters, all one word, lowercase.com. Recently, one pastor who had read the book told me that he also recommends the book to people who do not struggle with their assurance. He told me the book is much larger than subjective assurance. The fight of faith, he said, touches every area of our lives, and he's right, it does. The book can even be given to lost friends and family because there's a strong evangelistic undercurrent in the book also. One more thing before we end. In the future, we'd like to do another Q&A. So if you have any questions, just send us an email to web, W-E-B, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Please include your name. We'll not use your full name if your question is chosen, but we do want your name for a reason. One special questioner will receive a signed copy of my new book, The Fight of Faith. Well, on behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters Ministries, thank you for tuning in. May the Lord richly bless you with His love in a real and tangible way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.